Okay, is that better? Yeah. Oh yeah, I can hear that, that's better. Okay, so we're gonna start with a, a history lesson and quickly work our way into the scripture. So uh, Jake, if you could put that first slide up. It's a map of the border between Germany and France. The Second World War began in 1939. The First World War had been fought on pretty much the same ground. And it had turned into trench warfare with poison gases, first use of gases in wars, horrible, horrible deaths that men suffered. Um, and when that war ended, just like we do today, people studied it and tried to figure out how can we prevent this kind of a disaster from happening again. And the French built this line of defense, this red line you see here. It was known as the Maginot Line. It was named after a French general who designed this, this defense against Germany attacking again. Most of their efforts, the solid line here was a much stronger fortification. They built turrets into the ground, cement turrets with guns pointing out of them, intending to defend it. To the, to the northern part, they expected Belgium to take the, the defense first, so they didn't build quite as strong a line, a line. And then here, just north of Luxembourg, was a dense forest called the Ardennes. And no one thought that, that you could move an army through a forest like that. So they didn't bother there to make a very strong defense either. Most of the French reinforcements were down here in the southern part along that border with Germany. <coughs> so 19, the 1930s come, Hitler rises in power, Germany rebuilds its army, and in 1939, Hitler staged an attack west uh, to the, his east into Poland, attacked Poland in September 1939. At the same time, the Russians attacked Poland from the other side of the country. In less than three weeks, the power of the, the machinery that the Germans had built was so beyond anything that the Allies had. In less than three weeks, they trampled across Poland and Poland surrendered. Now, France and Belgium, uh, France and England had guaranteed Poland that they'd come to their aid if Germany did attack. Well, when Germany attacked Poland, the French and the English declared war against Germany. And they sat at home and watched Poland get squashed in three weeks' time. The term was, co was coined Blitzkrieg. It's German, it means lightning war, because the German armies flashed across Poland like a flash of lightning. It was unbelievable. The world sat in awe watching what the Germans could do. No one could believe it was possible. So the end of September comes, um, Poland surrenders, and then the German armies come and they line up on their side of this border. And the French and the English, the English more toward the north here, and the French, most of the French army was down here, guarding this southern part of their border, expecting that Germany would attack in the same way they had in the First World War. They lined up, so September, Poland falls. They lined up in October, and they 
each side sat on their own side of that line for October, November, December, January 1940, February, March, April, into May. Almost eight months, they sat and stared at one another across this line. They coined another term. Blitzkrieg was coined when Poland was crushed. The, the, the term that was coined here, in England they called it the phony war, because there was no war. For eight months they sat and looked at one another. In Germany they called it, instead of Blitzkrieg, they called it the Sitzkrieg, the sit-down war. That's what they, they wrote about in the papers. Then on May 10th, the Germans attacked. And they attacked in a way that no one expected. They didn't, they, they, they spent very little effort down here where the strongest defenses were held. They crashed through Belgium. To, it, was a, it was a feint, it was a, a ploy. They wanted to draw as much defense away from here to the north. So they started with an attack in Belgium, but really the main German forces came through that forest. And again, the world was just amazed. You can't drive tanks through a forest. That's what the Germans did. They pushed their panzer divisions through that forest. And when they broke through, they split the defending forces in two. They were able to hold these people in place down here so they couldn't come to the aid of those of this less well-defended place in the north. They crashed through the Ardennes and through Belgium, and they turned north. Like a door swinging on a hinge, they came down like this. Right about here, where this last dot is, somewhere on that part of the French coast, is the city of Dunkirk. Maybe you've heard of the miracle of Dunkirk. Over 400,000 men and women were trapped at Dunkirk, surrounded by the German army that had marched through and gone up to the coast. Nowhere to go. You got the English Channel up here, this is water, and you got German forces all around you, coming through Belgium, coming through the forest, and turning north, sealing them off. And it looked for all the world like there was nothing that was going to happen good with a situation like that. I'm going to leave it. We'll come back to the story in just a minute. But before we do, um, can you give me the next slide, Jake? See, we need to be asking God every day to supply the needs we have today. What they did when they planned that marginal line, they looked at yesterday's war, the battles they had to fight yesterday, and they said, Okay, we know what happened yesterday. This is how we defend ourselves. This is how we protect ourselves. But when tomorrow came, they weren't ready. Because tomorrow's challenge was not yesterday's challenge. Right? Circumstances change. Situations change. God is always blessing us. He's always at work. And every day, we need to hear his voice and to hear him tell us what we need to know today. What he told you yesterday, praise the Lord for, for blessing you and getting you through yesterday. But today is a whole new story. It's a whole different deal. 
And if you're counting on yesterday's blessing to get you through tomorrow, good luck. You need to go back. Lamentation says, I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Every day, he wants to give you what's lacking, what you need to get through the next day. But you gotta, you got to be listening. You know? His microphone doesn't need new batteries. It works all the time. He's always shouting at us. But we don't hear sometimes because we're not listening. Every day, his mercies are new. What you need today is available to you today. And tomorrow, he'll bless you with what you need tomorrow. He hasn't forgotten you. Don't make the mistake that General Maginot made, thinking that preparing for what attack came yesterday guarantees me security tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. It won't happen. Go ahead, one more slide, Jake. We've been studying this in our Sunday school. The fact that God is always, always working. He never drops the ball. Every day he's doing something. You know, we read scripture and we read about things that happened thousands of years ago and it seems like there's a disconnect. It worked thousands of years ago, but it's different today. God doesn't work in the way in the world today in the same ways that he did then. But I want you to know he's always working. Look what he says to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, I see the branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, you've seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Now in English, that doesn't really work real well. What the heck is he talking about? What's an almond tree got to do with anything, right? But in the Hebrew, there's a rhyme going on. The word for an almond tree is shakade in Hebrew, shakade. And the word for I am watching is shokade. It rhymes. Shakade, almond tree, shokade. I am watching. So God shows him this picture and says, what do you see? And Jacob says, I see an almond tree. I see a shockade. And God says to him, you've seen well. I showed you a shockade because I'm shockade. I'm watching. I know what's going on around you, Jeremiah. I know you see the rebellion of the people in Jerusalem. What's going on in, this, in the nation? I know that the enemy is not far away. But I got your back. I'm watching. I know what's going on, and I'm working out my will through the circumstances. He always wants us to know he's working. In Proverbs, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. You've been there, right? <clears throat> You've seen situations where someone does right, maybe it was you. And things didn't work out so well for you, and you know somebody who did bad. And it seemed like they got the blessing, and how can that be? How can God allow that? God has got to be fair. He's got to be just, doesn't he? 
but he promises he's watching. He knows what the just are doing, and he knows what the unjust are doing. And in the end, the judge of all the earth will do right. He's working. He knows what's happening around us. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but I'll harden his heart and he won't let the people go. God works in the world, sometimes hardening people, sometimes softening people, always with the purpose of showing us his will, of accomplishing the thing he needs done. He wanted his people delivered in a mighty way through the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, it says, the night before the sea parted, a wind came out of the east. God used the weather. He raised a powerful wind that blew and it parted the waters. It pushed them aside. It says the waters stood up like walls on the sides and they walked through on dry land on the middle. He's always working. He knows what his purposes are and he works them out on a grand scale like that, delivering a nation. And he works them out in tiny little ways, blessing me, taking care of maybe a bill I thought I couldn't pay, or maybe I was sick and he healed me. Or somehow he makes me know he's working on every scale. He knows you and he knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. And he loves you and wants to bring you through it. He's working toward that end right now. That's who he is. That's what he does. Yeah, go ahead to the next one, Joe. This is a long one. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But it's a story from 2 Samuel. It's about uh, Elisha, the prophet Elisha. And the king from Aram, Aram is trying to attack. This is like 3000 BC, somewhere around there. He's trying to attack Israel. But God keeps telling Elisha, what this plans, what this king's plans are. And Elisha goes to the king of Israel and he says, okay, he's coming at you from this place, so be ready. So the king of Aram tries to attack and he finds Israel's waiting for him. So he makes a new plan. He goes somewhere else and tries again. And God tells Elisha what he's going to do. And Elisha tells the king of Israel. And again, Israel is ready when Aram tries to attack. And this goes on a few times. And finally the king says, who here is the spy that's telling my enemy what we're doing? Because there's got to be somebody, because this guy can't know time and again where I'm going to attack from. Somebody's telling him where to go and what to do. And one of his men says, no, there's nobody telling him. It's this prophet, Elisha. God keeps telling him, and he tells the king, and the king's ready for you every time. So the king from Aram says, okay, here's the deal then. I'm going to raise up a force. I'm going to take this force and we're going to go find this guy, Elisha. Where is he? And they find out he's in a place called Dothan. So the king sends his men to attack Dothan. And they come to Dothan and they surround the city and they're ready to capture Elisha and kill him. And Elisha's servant says to him, Elisha, we're in a bad way here. This enemy is all around us. No way we can fight them. We're totally surrounded. Just like those men at Dunkirk, totally surrounded, no way out. And Elijah prays and he says, God, open my servant's eyes so he can see. 
And God opens his eyes and he sees in the treetops all around him the armies of God ready to fight the battle. And Elisha prays and he says, God, strike this enemy with a blindness. And in the last verse, Dale, you, you read that God answered him, struck his enemy. And they again left unable to conquer people who trust in God. We read stories like this. There's, there's dozens of stories like this I could have picked to, to share with you. But I want you to know that God works. The problem, see, we read this stuff. It's like this is 3,000 years ago. Jesus' death was 2,000 years ago. It's all, it seems unreal somehow. Too long ago, too far ago. Not happening today. But I want to tell you, happens every day. Go to the next slide for me. We'll pick up that story <clears throat> of these men surrounded, men and women surrounded at Dunkirk, no way out. The British made a plan to try to use what ships they could arrange and evacuate as many people out of Dunkirk as they could. Over 400,000 men and women trapped. They thought maybe with a little luck they could get 30,000 out. If things went really well, maybe we can even get as many as 45,000 people out. And here's what happens. May 26, King George of England asked for a national day of prayer that God would, the BEF was the British, it was called the British Expeditionary Force. That was the name of the team, that the British team that was in northern France. He asked for prayer. He asked his people to pray that God would deliver them. Thousands, literally thousands of people showed up at Westminster Abbey to pray that God would somehow intervene, to make a way for people to be able to survive, to escape that trap. The next day, May 27th, 1940, Hitler orders his panzer tank divisions to halt their attack. They, they, remember that map that the, the, the enemy had swung through from the east toward the west and then up to the coast? And all these panzer divisions are ready to go back east toward Dunkirk and to wipe them out. They could easily have done it. No one really knows why Hitler gave the command for them to stop. Now, some people think what Hitler was trying to do was give the English a chance. He, wanted, he didn't want to fight with England. He just wanted England to go away so he could take Europe easily. So maybe, you know, he figures if he, if he doesn't attack straight away, there was an outcry in England. The way the war had gone that, those first few weeks in June, uh, in May, people were afraid that they would be slaughtered, and that's what was happening. There was an outcry in England, get out of the war. Let what happened to France, what happens, but save our sons, get them out of there. Hitler thought, some, some say Hitler thought maybe the English will go away if I don't squash them right away. Other people say there's another reason. At a city not far from Dunkirk, a city named Arras in France, there'd been a tank, tank battle between the German panzers and the English and French. And although the English and French lost the battle, it was close to a standoff. See, what happened is, the German tanks came in so fast that the army, the military, on foot couldn't keep up. 
So you have all these tanks way far to the west and the military trying to catch them so they can support them. Well, this battle happens at Ara, and because there's no military to defend the tanks, it was a much more even fight, and the Germans almost lost. And some historians believe that what happened was General Rommel, the, the, the German general in charge of the forces there, asked Hitler to put a delay on so that the infantry could catch up. And once they all got there, then in force, they would attack together. No one knows really why Hitler did what he did, but he did. He stopped the attack. That was the first step. Operation Dynamo, that was the name that the English gave to this operation to try to evacuate as many soldiers out as they could. May 26. Um, prayer, May 27, Hitler stops his army from slaughtering those people. May 28, a massive storm. You remember the story about Egypt and how God made a wind blow to part the sea? On May 28, 1940, a massive storm moves into Flanders. That's the whole area. That section of northern France is known as Flanders. On May 28, a massive storm moves into Flanders. The army has been ordered to stop. And because of this storm, um, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, is grounded. They can't attack from the air. They've been ordered not to attack from the ground. That storm lasted for days. It stayed there. But here's the, here's the second part of that miracle. And at the same time this storm comes up from the south and clouds and storms the ground, out in the channel in the English Sea, despite the storm raging over the land, the waters of the English Channel were more calm than usual. How can both happen, right? A storm, you, you, you know what a storm is like down here on the coast, right? Storms don't mean nice, smooth seas, do they? Just the opposite. It means waves three times as tall as you, crashing, moving rocks, moving the ground. But both of these things happen. God made a storm that grounded the Luftwaffe God made a calm sea that allowed those ships to get across the channel. Now, it wasn't a complete grounding. There were German planes that did get into the air, and they sunk many ships around Dunkirk, so much so that the port actually had to be closed. There was so much um, dead tonnage, sunken ships in that port, you couldn't get boats in and out. So what they did was that the English had, I mean, every little fishing boat, anything that was 15 feet or longer, crossed the channel and didn't go right into the port at Dunkirk, but went into the surrounding areas. And they'd load as many men as they could, and they'd ferry them back out to the bigger ships. And they kept doing that while the Germans sat waiting to attack when Hitler would give the order that they could attack again. May 27 to June 4, nine days. Operation Dynamo wound up at lasting nine days. You remember they hoped maybe, maybe 30 to 45,000 if we're lucky. Over 338,000 soldiers were evacuated from Dunkirk in those nine days. I want to tell you, that's no different than what God did in this story that we just read about Elisha and the king of Aram and the king of Israel. God intervened. 
God heard their prayer. They prayed and God answered. God put into the mind of Hitler, we're going to stop. We can't continue because it's not a good idea. And the God raised up a storm to cloud those skies so that that air force could not attack. And then God calmed the sea so that the ships could cross the channel and bring those men back. That happened not 4,000 years ago, not 3,000 years ago. That was 78 years ago. There are still people alive today who read about this in the newspaper. God is always at work. And his purpose is to save us, to deliver us from the enemy who wants us dead. It's not different. Don't let the enemy tell you it is. The only difference is, what will you do with what you know? Will you trust the Lord? Or will you try to figure it out on your own? Make your own way? God's not different. He's the same. Go to the next one for me. Please. While an incredibly huge number of soldiers had been spared by the miracle of Dunkirk, still the French and the English paid a terrible price. The English left behind enough equipment for about eight to ten divisions. That means huge amounts of ammunition, 880 field guns, 310 large caliber guns, 500 anti-aircraft guns, 850 anti-tank guns, 11,000 machine guns, 700 tanks, 20,000 motorcycles, 45,000 motor cars and transport vehicles. The Germans took it all and used it against them. In England, there remained enough material to equip maybe two divisions. They lost enough material for eight to ten and had left maybe enough for two. They paid a price. See what happened. The French and the English did not coordinate well together. They spread out their, de their defenses along this huge line, and the Germans attacked in one particular point, and they punched through. They split the forces. They isolated. I want to tell you, the enemy of your soul is trying to do the same thing. See, you need one another. You need me, I need you. We need one another if we're going to survive in this fight against our common enemy. And he knows that. So the first thing he wants to do, he wants to send through a force that, that, that puts a line here that separates me from you. Now I'm on my own. Me with you, he has a tough time fighting against. But me all by myself? It's a cakewalk for him. A piece of cake. Nothing to it. They let that happen. They let themselves get isolated. And once they were isolated, they were easy pickings, except God stepped in and changed them. In his mercy, he delivers them. When we get ourselves in trouble, he is merciful and will deliver us. But just like they paid a price, we pay a price. We suffer hurt when we allow the enemy to come against us and separate us from one another. The most, if you hear nothing else this morning, Hear this. 
God wants us united for our good and for his good. You've been hearing that. My son's been preaching the same thing for a while. We've been talking about it in Sunday school. You're going to hear a whole lot more about it because that's where we belong. That's where we need to be. We need to be one church. We need to be working for the purposes of God's kingdom together, supporting one another, blessing one another in all kinds of ways. I don't even know what God's going to do, but I know he's going to do something. And he's depending on us working together to get it done. That's not a new idea with God. Having his people work together. Go to the next one, please. He's always, he's always working. He's always calling us to unity, to be together. It comes on different levels. Genesis 2. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's as though there's not two minds anymore. There's just one. A part of loving is, is joining in a way that becomes inseparable. I can't, take, I can't take my heart out and put it over there and be a healthy person. It's got to be inside here pumping blood. Can't take my pancreas and leave it on the table out in the foyer and everything's going to be fine. I need all of me to be functioning and to be healthy and to have any chance of being happy. In a marriage, the two become one. To try to take one of those people and put him or her somewhere else, can't live. Divorce is death. That's why God hates it. It's death. A marriage makes a unity. There is not a man and a woman anymore. There is just a family, one family, comprised of the two. A unity made out of a diversity. That's what God, that's what God is, right? He's Trinity. He's the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And they're all different somehow from one another. And yet, there's one God. He is more than one, and yet he's one. And we reflect that. In our relationships. A marriage is meant to reflect that nature of what the Trinity is, becoming two, becoming one. Second Chronicles. <clears throat> this, this is uh, Hezekiah is king in Israel, and Israel is sinning just like <clears throat> the, um, the northern kingdom had, and the northern kingdom had gone into captivity. And <clears throat> Hezekiah wants to call the people back to celebrate together, to worship God. He's one of the good kings, one of the few good kings in the southern kingdom. <clears throat> and he wants to have this celebration. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he sends couriers up north, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun. That's way up the northern kingdom that had already been conquered. <clears throat> he wants to invite people to come to this celebration. But the people scorned and they ridiculed the couriers. Nevertheless, some from Asha, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves, and they went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered. God was involved in the process, trying to reunite a broken nation. The northern kingdom's already conquered. The southern kingdom is going to hell in a handbasket. 
And a good king comes along and calls them back to repentance, to a time of celebration together. And how does God respond? God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered. I want you to know this morning, church, that God is in this place and his intention is to give us a unity of mind that we as a church work together to accomplish whatever it is that God is going to tell us to do. I want you to be part of that. I want you to be excited about that. I want you to join that. I want you to find blessedness and happiness in that. Because that's life. That's what life is. Thank you. That's what life is. Sharing trials and troubles. Finding joy in the success of a neighbor instead of your own success. Because your neighbor's success is your success. That's the point, people. We were never meant to be alone. We're meant to be together. We're meant to support one another. God wants us united. Psalm 133 is one of my favorites. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That's what God wants. He doesn't want to just bless me and good luck to you all. He doesn't want to bless you and forget me. He wants us together. He wants us to be part, to join him in the Trinity. That's what heaven is, us being with God for all eternity. It's an eternal unity. It will be accomplished in heaven. It's up to us whether we make it real in Graceway Community Church or not. It's up to you and it's up to me. Sacrificially give of yourself for what the God for what God wants to accomplish through us and for us. One more. Jesus' high priestly prayer, John seventeen. John puts it just before the crucifixion story in his gospel. It's the last thing um, that Jesus speaks freely about before the trial, before he's arrested and tried and killed. And Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you. That's me. We believe through the message that was delivered through the disciples. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you and I, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you sent me. Why does the world believe? Because we got all the right doctrine? Because we know we've dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's? Nope. The world believes because we love one another and we act in unity for our God to accomplish his purposes. That's what matters. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that we may be brought to complete unity. There's the goal. It says it over and over. In the Old Testament, he said it. In the New Testament, he says it over and over. We need to unite ourselves to one another. That's a principle you find throughout the book, cover to cover. Then the world will know that you sent me, and you've loved them even as you've loved me.
I can't say it any better than that. <laughs> That's our goal. That's what we're here for. That's what we're supposed to be about. Let's make the word of God live in our hearts and reach out through us to one another, to this community. May God bless you.